right. Good morning, Emmaus. Uh, if you would, take your Bible and open to Acts chapter 17. Those of you who are joining us online and, and in the building this morning, we are working through Acts chapter 17 as a standalone series to ask the question, what does it mean to be the church? And so we are going to conclude Acts chapter 17 next week on Easter, three services, 8 o'clock, 9.15, 10.45. We have opportunities for your kids, grandkids, neighbors who come. It's going to be a, a wonderful day. If you can make the 8 o'clock service, that really helps us at 9.15 and 10.45 to be able to do that. If you come at 8 or 9.15 and you can serve or greet at one of the other services, that's also uh, a great gift for us. We're excited about being able to do that. This morning, we have Palm Sunday as we gather around God's word, asking that question, God, what does it mean to be a part of a church? What are you doing in and through your church? And so we're going to be looking at scripture this morning and then pushing ahead to observing the Lord's Supper at the end of our service as an act of worship and a remembrance here on Palm Sunday of what Jesus has done in coming and giving of us life. So we're going to celebrate that at the end and sing a song together about our lives being built on this good news of Jesus. So that's our hope this morning in looking at scripture. I don't have the initial scriptures on the screen uh, right here, but we want to read verses 15 through 20, and then we're going to get into the message. So this is Acts chapter 17, verses 15 through 20. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. May God bless the reading of his word. So as I was thinking this week about presenting and, and preaching about who we are as a church here based out of Acts chapter 17, I thought it'd be interesting to see how other organizations describe themselves. So we're going to play a quick game of can you name that organization, okay? I know this is all, all, everyone's favorite game, so just prepare yourself. Number one, this company's purpose is to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Any guess? Nike, that's right, it's Nike. Uh, to entertain, inform, and inspire people around the globe through unparalleled storytelling. Any guess? Disney. This is the Disney mission of, and you thought it was to sell lots of products to your kids and your family, but apparently this is their mission. Next, to be our customers' favorite place and way to eat and drink. Any guesses? McDonald's. This is their company mission. Their company purpose is to be our customer's favorite place and way to eat and drink. Number four, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us. Chick-fil-A. 
That's the Chick-fil-A mission and purpose, is to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us. Now, as a church, based on the word of God, built around the good news of Jesus, we realize we don't get to make up our mission. We don't get to make up our purpose. It's given to us in Scripture, this call to make disciples. But even as you think about Scripture and, and what it means to be a church, there are so many different imagery and angles and, and ways that that's presented. So as a church, as we gather together saying we're friends with other churches and we're committed to the gospel and we want to be passionate about revival and what God would do, how do we talk about that at Emmaus, this calling that we have? What we say at Emmaus is that we exist to proclaim and display Jesus. We exist means that church is about we, not me. So church is not primarily about my preferences or my comfort. Church is a we game, that we are in this together. We exist to proclaim. Proclaim is what we do with our words. So we want to speak about Jesus and, and we want to speak like Jesus. We want our words to do that. Display is what we do with our actions. People should see our lives and see that our lives are pointed toward Jesus, oriented around Jesus. We put that word and in there because we want our words and actions to match. Nothing turns people away from religion like you saying one thing and doing another. So we want to proclaim and display Jesus. We want to speak about Jesus and live lives to point people toward Jesus. And we want Jesus to be the focus of all that we do. So who are we as a church? We exist as a church to proclaim and display Jesus. Now, how do you do that? What does it look like to do that? Well, we use the word up as our word for worship, that we want to live up in prayer and praise to the Lord, that Jesus is king and our life is oriented up to him. The ultimate expression of that, the ultimate up is salvation. <laughs> When you reach the end of your own rope and realize I'm never going to fix my life on my own, I'm never going to be able to get my life together, I can never overcome sin and death on my own, and so instead of looking in or looking around to the world for the answer, I finally look up to Jesus as King, and I repent and believe and experience that salvation, and that begins a life of prayer and praise, that daily continually in my heart, in my home, and everything I do, I'm praying and praising the Lord. And I don't just want to do that by myself. I need to get together with other believers to pray and to praise. Because guess what, friends? We get discouraged and we get distracted. <laughs> and in life, when we get discouraged and we start to look at the ground and we get distracted and we start to look at everything around us, you know what we need to do? We need to look up together to the Lord. And so we do that as a church. And we talk about what God does in us. So we, we do it up toward the Lord. We also think about the word in, which at Emmaus, when we talk about in, we talk about encouraging one another. And we encourage one another with the word of God. Sometimes that means you comfort someone that's hurting. Sometimes that means you challenge someone who's grown lazy in their faith and is turning away from the Lord. But we are committed in to God's word and in toward one another. And, and so I want God's word in my life because we know the danger of a religion where everything looks good on the outside of your life, but inside your life is a mess. And we're saying, God, I don't want that. I want you to do a work in me by your word and by your spirit that then comes out. So do this in me and, and do this in my home. 
Because we don't want to have a faith where everybody in your house is told to look good in public, but you get behind closed doors and it's not good. It's not about Jesus. We're saying, God, do this work in my home. Let our homes be a place of encouragement and hospitality and do this work in the church. Commit me to a local church where I can serve and be a part of a group and be connected as a member and be encouraged in the faith. So we want to look up to the Lord. Jesus is king. We want to look in. God, we need your encouragement. We need your word. We need your spirit. We need each other. And then we want to look out because whatever God does in us He sends us out on mission. And he sends us out to our neighborhoods where we live, learn, work, and play wherever God has put you. He sends you out to proclaim and display Jesus, to give what he's given to you, to go in response to the Great Commission. And we do it in the nations, which oftentimes means going to other countries. But God in his goodness and sovereignty and providence brings the nations to our neighborhoods as well. And so God, open my eyes to how I can live out, that what you do in me doesn't stay here. I love Emmaus. I love the encouragement we have in the Lord. But God, what you do inside this church family, what you do inside these walls, do it in a way that sends us out. That what you do in us, you do through us. And God, let that be true. Now the question is, we walk through that, this is who we are as a church, that out piece is where we are this morning. And I want to show you from Acts chapter 17 how we as a church can live out sharing the good news of Jesus. So look with me in verse 15. We're going to start there. The question we're asking ourselves this morning is how can we live out on mission evangelistically? Verse 15. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, I want to show you a map that I've been showing a couple of weeks now to follow this journey that that Paul has been on. He started in Philippi. He moved to Thessalonica, which we looked at two weeks ago, talking about worship. Then instead of following I-40 to Rome, he, he exited off and went a little bit to the southwest to Berea, and we talked about testing against the Word of God, that the Word of God is our foundation. Now he moves down to Athens, Athens is obviously a key city in the ancient world. This is the city of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. This is the city of great architecture, great learning. By the time of Paul, it's starting to lose its shine just a little bit by the time of the New Testament, but it's still a city of great reputation. Um, I was trying to think of a contemporary example that would take us south and southeast a little bit. Houston, New Orleans, Something like that, a a coastal city with with a lot of influence and a lot of diversity and a lot of reputation. So so Paul has finally exited and he's gone down to the south-southeast to Houston or New Orleans or or pick your favorite place south and southeast of here that, that has that type of reputation. So he goes there. What does he see when he gets there? Look at verse 16. When he gets to verse 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That word provoked, uh, it it can have a feeling of anger. It's it's a word about being distressed and and emotion coming out. And so there is an element of anger. But as much as you might read anger into that verse, see Paul with tears in his eyes. Uh, more, More than with a heart full of rage, 
Paul is broken over what he sees in Athens. What breaks Paul's heart here? What brings the emotions to the surface? He sees that the city is full of idols. And just for a moment, <laughs> you might be tempted to think, man, I'm great. I'm glad that if you know, somebody was to visit our city, they wouldn't see a city full of idols. Eh, they would. They would. We don't always see it. But friends, we live in a world full of idols, and, and we, we recognize that, that people give their devotion, they look to something created rather than the creator to find peace and hope and life and identity. The thing in life that we devote ourselves, the thing that if it was taken away, we would feel like all of life was stripped away. Think about what it means to live in a city full of idols and convince yourself that that is your city. <laughs> That that is where we live. We don't have to go to another country and find little statues to find a city full of idols. That's the world that we live in right here. And as the people of God, we have to ask ourselves, what is our response to that? What is our response to living in a city that is full of idols? Here's the call. Here's the first way that we can live on mission. We must be broken over idolatry. The first step in living on mission in the world, to be a church that goes out, is we must be broken over idolatry. To notice that Paul's response here, when he sees these idols, he's provoked by it. He's, he's bothered by what he sees, which means he's avoiding one of two extremes. There's one extreme that we see idols, and we're tempted to join in, or we're kind of jealous of that, or, or we're, we're uh, intrigued by it. There's another extreme where you just become completely judgmental and rant against it. And it's the type of rage that doesn't bring anything good. And so what Paul finds in the middle is he is just broken over idolatry. And if you'll hear me out on this next point really clearly, it is very hard to speak to other people about the importance of Jesus being keen when he's not keen of your own life. It is very difficult to speak to other people about the importance of Jesus being keen when he's not keen of my own life. And so the first place I need to be broken over idolatry is not by what I see out there, it's what I see right here. The way that my heart becomes an idol factory, the way I find myself devoting my life and finding my identity in things that ultimately are not of the Lord. And so as the people of God, we are going to be most on mission in the world when we are most broken over the idols in our own life and in our own church and in the world around us. God, break us over those things. Help us to identify places in the world and in our own life where we're giving ourselves to something other than the Lord. And we're broken over the brokenness that happens in the world. When you see people giving their life to something other than the Lord, what does that bring up in your heart? When you see someone's life broken because they're living for something that doesn't match the things of the Lord, what does that stir up in your heart? Paul, what we find there is he is provoked. These emotions come to the surface. What does he do, though, in response to that? Here's the key. Look what happens in verse 17. In verse 17, it says, So he reasoned, in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day. Notice, here's, this is really key. 
when Paul is provoked by the idols, he doesn't leave the town. He doesn't withdraw from the city. We would be tempted in our Christian life to say, oh my goodness, look at all the idols out there. We should go somewhere else. Obviously, God's not calling us to Athens, except what does Paul do? He walks right into the middle of it. He says, here's a city full of idols. I'm broken over it. That's exactly where I need to be. I'm I'm going right there. And he doesn't rant, he reasons. He engages with the people. Uh, He goes there and says, here's what I'm gonna present Jesus to you in the midst of this. Where does he reason? He reasoned in the synagogue with the, the Jews and the devout persons. Paul has a pattern. When he goes to different places, where does he almost always start? He starts in the synagogue. This is the way that his ministry progresses. It shows us so much of the continuity of Scripture and how God works among his people, beginning with Israel and that story continuing into the New Testament. He goes to the synagogue, and he starts there with the, with the Jews and those who are devout, those who are God-fearing. And then it also says he goes into the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. The word marketplace is that famous word agora, A-G-O-R-A. It just means the hub of life. The hub of the the cultural life of the city happened here in, in the marketplace, in the agora. How do you translate that to the 21st century? Probably the internet. I mean, it's probably the closest thing we have to think about an agora, a marketplace, a meeting of people, a mixing of people. The agora was the place that the crowds could be stirred up. So where do we have in our contemporary world that you can go and get people riled up about something? The internet, maybe. Like, that might be be an option to think about. So when you see the marketplace, this is a place where people engaged on an everyday basis. This is where the crowds were gathered together. And what does Paul do? He says, I need to go there. I need to go where the the people are. Paul was the little mermaid. I want to be where the people are. That's where Paul wanted to be. He said, I want to engage with the people that are in front of me. What happens at the beginning of the next verse? He also engages with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who conversed with him. Now there's a, there's a lot of uh, historical references going on here when we get the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and so hear me out. If, if you're a scholar of the ancient world, enjoy reach, researching these things, I'm gonna paint with a very broad brush talking about the Epicurean and, and Stoic philosophers. But here's the key, because I, I think you can find a parallel in contemporary life. The Epicureans were known as those who were very materialistic. They either didn't believe in the gods or they thought the gods were so distant and removed from the world that they didn't really have anything to do with everyday life. So maybe not atheistic, but definitely agnostic. The gods were far away and weren't involved with life. The Epicureans were the philosophers mainly of the higher class, the more educated class, and and they emphasized the importance of pleasure and tranquility to survive the difficulties of life. You were, you were pursuing pleasure, not always in a sensual way, but, but you wanted pleasure and peace and a life of tranquility and ease, and, and that's how you got through the world. And so they, they operated in high class with very little regard for the things of God. The Stoics were the more popular level philosophers. A lot of, influ- uh, a lot of emphasis on God, the theory of God permeating all things. Uh, so there's a, there's a phrase, pantheism, that, that God is in all and through all. And so the Stoics saw divine power 
going all throughout the world, and your goal as a person was to do your duty. Your goal was to live in harmony with nature, to do what was reasonable and right. So let me take that and and back up and, and go with me for a second. The Epicureans, in many ways, I think you could call the East and West Coast elites to a degree, very little regard for the things of God, operated at a very high level, focused on what was pleasurable and, and made for the easiest life. The Stoics, we might take as your Midwestern hard scrabble, do your duty, be self-sufficient, operate with the divine power at work in the world, but in both cases, they needed the message of Jesus because you could be a coastal elite or you could be a hard-working, everyday laborer in the middle of America, and guess what? Both people need Jesus. Because in both places, you are trusting in something other than the Lord Jesus for life and salvation. And so Paul is interacting with high-class philosophers, and he's interacting with the philosophers of the people. Three groups, let me kind of provide a summary of this so you'll see what Paul's doing. He is engaging with three main groups of people. The religious, the everyday, and the influencers. So when Paul went out into the world, he was looking for those who were religious, but whose life was not devoted to following Jesus. Do you know anybody like that? Who do you interact with who is particularly religious, but their life is not devoted to following Jesus, to trusting him for salvation? Paul went to the everyday people, He went to the marketplace. He went to where people lived and learned and worked and played. And he went there and he engaged with the gospel. These are the people you know who are just trying to make their payments on their house. They're trying to take their kids and grandkids to activities. They're trying to interact with people on social media without, you know, causing too much of a ruckus. They're just everyday people. They're the people you would interact with on an everyday basis. But they don't have meaning and ultimate purpose for life. They are not following Jesus. They haven't found that salvation. And then there's the influencers. Um, I don't know how many of you interact with people who are influential, uh, but you think about people in university settings, people in major tech companies and corporations, people who have a lot more influence and say in the world than probably you and I do. Uh, Paul interacted with those people because he knew that People who have influence, their influence ultimately flows down to the way that we operate and the way that we think. And so Paul went to the religious, he went to the everyday, he went to the influencers, he saw where the idols and the brokenness were, and he said, I need to go there. What did he do when he went there? Here's the key. Look what happens at the middle of 18. The middle of 18, some of them said about Paul, what does this babbler wish to say? Spoiler alert, babbler is not a comment or a compliment here. It's not, it's not a good thing that they're saying about Paul. They're calling him a third-rate journalist who just picks up bits of information and tries to sell it to people. This is not a compliment about Paul that he's called a babbler. Some call him a babbler. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Interesting. That phrasing is what got Socrates killed. This is the same phrasing of introducing foreign divinities, foreign gods into the culture that that gave Socrates so much trouble. Paul's being lumped into that same category. He's preaching foreign divinities. Which foreign gods is Paul preaching? Well, he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
Some debate on this, but there's a good chance that Paul's early listeners, early audience in Athens, thought Jesus and resurrection were two different gods. These were new concepts to them, and so they heard Paul preaching about a God called Jesus and a God called resurrection, and these were new ideas that that were coming into them. So Paul is preaching about these things. What's their response to that? Verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This was kind of a legislative body, a a gathering of people where uh, debates could take place, and they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, next week on Easter, we're going to get into Paul's response. But here's what I want you to see this morning, Emmaus. When we identify idols in the world, and when we choose to engage people, here's point number three. We must be ready to give an answer. So what is the calling of a church that lives on mission, a church that lives evangelistically, as Jim, in all of his spiritual wisdom and love for the Lord and love for the church, leads us to live a life that's focused out? We have to find places in the world where, the, where there's idolatry and bro- brokenness. We have to be able to see that. We have to be willing with love and deep emotion to engage people right where they are, and we have to be ready to give an answer. It's interesting how people respond to Paul. We find out what Paul talked about. What did Paul primarily talk about? Jesus and the resurrection. It's a good question to ask ourselves. If people outside the church were asked to describe what do those church people talk about most, what do we talk about most? Let it be Jesus and the resurrection. That that is what we are known for talking about. And... Just like in Paul's case, it's not only that we use those words, we have to be ready to explain what they mean. Because friends, we live in a world where two groups of people can use the same word and mean entirely different things by it. That you can talk about God, you can talk about salvation, you can talk about being spiritual, and you can talk to two groups of people and you mean completely different things by those words. So we wanna be people who talk about Jesus and the resurrection, and we can explain to people what we mean by those concepts, and not only what we mean, but why it matters. Because most of our friends and neighbors who aren't followers of Jesus, it's not that they blatantly are disbelieving in those things, so that is true, they just don't think it matters. They don't see the point behind it, they don't see the purpose behind it, and so as followers of Jesus, We not only talk about what these things mean, but why does Jesus matter for your life and for all of eternity? What is the purpose of the resurrection? This isn't like a Bible story that you learn in vacation Bible school. This is the core of our hope. This is what our life is built around, is that we on our own could never take care of our brokenness and sin and pain and death. None of us can overcome that on our own. Our only hope is Jesus. And so we talk about Jesus and the resurrection. What do we find as Paul goes to Athens? We find him broken over idolatry. He's broken over the brokenness of the city. Are we broken over the idolatry that we see in the world around us? Have we grown casual to it? Do we just rage against it? Are we tempted to join in? What's our response to idolatry? Do we love 
and engage people right where they are, or do we mainly withdraw from people? God, let us be people that go, that, that go to those who are hurting. Let us be people who our hearts are broken because they don't know the saving power of Jesus. And let us be people who talk about Jesus and the resurrection, who are ready to give an answer for the hope we have, what it means and why it matters. And so as we think about that as a church, and as we, as we look ahead to Easter, the best way I knew to wrap up today is to worship by taking of the Lord's Supper together, to remember what Jesus has done for us and why it matters. So here in just a moment, I'm gonna pray for us. And after I pray for us, if you've been asked to help with the Lord's Supper this morning, as soon as I pray, if you will go to one of these tables and, and prepare to help, we'll ask you, as soon as people are at the tables, to come and take the two cups that are stacked together. Take those stacked cups back to your chair, wait, and we'll take that together. And then we're gonna sing a final song about what we want our lives to truly be built on. Who we want to be as a church. Who we want to be as those who follow Jesus. I pray that God would use this time of worship here to prepare us to go out and share the good news of Jesus. Let's pray together and we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for Paul's example that we see here in the book of Acts. God, as a church, we wanna be a church that worships you passionately through prayer and praise. God, we wanna be a church that is committed to the word of God and a place where people are encouraged. And God, we do not want to stay within the walls of a building. God, we wanna be sent out with the good news of Jesus. We wanna be a church that lives on mission, that proclaims the gospel of Jesus. And God, we do that in a world that's just full of idols, where people are building their life on something that will never last, that will never satisfy. And so God, send us out to love people, to be broken, over the brokenness we see in the world. And God, help us to be a church that talks about Jesus and the resurrection. And so Father, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper right now, as we remember Palm Sunday and how that would lead to Good Friday, to Jesus giving his body and his blood, ultimately for our salvation, our being made right with you, God, I pray that this would be a meaningful and somber and reverent act of worship before you. And then, God, as we sing together, would you send us out to share this with others? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.